Hi, welcome back to another episode of the FM Channel podcast. My name is uh, Claudio Rojas. I'm one of the, uh, the co-owners and senior recruiters at Alex Young Recruitment. Today, I am joined uh, by Mickey Rooney. Mickey, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Um, before we go into uh, the interview, if you like, I'm just going to do a quick little intro to the show for anybody that hasn't listened or tuned in before. Um, so the FM Channel podcast is all about um, speaking to people from the industry uh, and learning the per learning about the person behind the job title, as one of the viewers actually uh, emailed me and put it, uh, which is a good description, actually. Um, so, yeah, the idea is to kind of hear people's story from a different backgrounds, how they got into FM, what they like about the industry, um, um, just so we can see who the people are that are in the sector, who, who's, running the, who's running the show, really. Um, so before we go into your, into your journey, uh, Mickey, could you first give us a bit of an intro as to what you currently do and who you do it for? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I work at JLL, uh, as you said, a programme director. What does that mean? It's a pretty open title. Um, so uh, I work within corporate solutions. JLL effectively breaks down into three delivery divisions. There's the, the wealth market bits, capital markets, which is almost like a banking function, evaluation advisory, which is effectively a state agency, uh, albeit really large, complicated estate agency. And I work in corporate solutions. So we're the part of the business that delivers services into whoever is using this space, whether it be occupiers or owners. Um, so things like IFM um, and space planning, uh, doing um, rental management, all those kind of aspects. Yeah. I work within the EMEA team um, and as a programme director, um, I'm uh, leading a team that is digitising services. Uh, so one of the big jobs we had was Integral, um, which lots of people know is an m &E provider, was acquired by JLL um, in 2017. And uh, then it had to be integrated into the business. So from 2018 onwards, uh, we did a reset of the way it's structured, done a little bit of a rebrand for those that have seen it lately to align it more to JLL's colours, but also JLL's message. And the big bit was technology insertion. So having rearranged people and process with end on technology. And on the back of that, they're very much an alpha programme because they're right at the front end for um, changing the way we're delivering services into the built environment, looking at on-demand, so Uberization. And the other part is, um, I mean, people call it smart, smart tech, smart in buildings. Yeah. Actually, we're looking at, um, with the technology that's already there, we augment it with a number of sensors, whether wired or wireless, and we're moving everything onto analytics for prediction and data processing, which then generates greater value, both for the client, but also better cost control, and ultimately better activity for us as a company, whether it be, if we use Integral for an engineer doing better, more interesting engineering, mm. and being much more engaged in the process, to our valuation and advisory teams that are looking to use that data to understand the cost and use of space so that they're you know approaching the market in a better way and ensuring that the clients that we interact with get a better value deal in terms of people place um, and profit and the people in place i think were found in 2020 into 2021 have become much more important everybody has now got net zero carbon looking after the planet as a really core cool part of their agenda but embodied in that is really looking after our people. And if there was ever a year to prove to us how important our people are, it was last year, um, the need for everybody to effectively shift to work from home mm. um, meant that some people have liked it, some people haven't. Um, I had a really good quote the other day that are we working from home or are we now all just living at work? 
<laughs> that is so true. That is so and, true. And, and I think quite a lot of people they feel that way. Yeah. So the follow-on programs that um, I'm lucky enough to be involved with are, are looking at how we use technology to improve the way our, our people work in JLL, but also for our clients, how they can work better and collectively how we can look after the built environment in a, a far better way than perhaps we have done over the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah, excellent. That uh, sounds really interesting. So, I mean, I guess in the last year for you, is it... I mean, it's been super busy for you guys then, I guess. I mean, the, the shift that you've had to make with everybody working from home, I guess, is your kind of focus gone from here to there or is it kind of just speeded up really? Or yeah, it's, I think the speeding up is one. Um, inevitably, you know, most of the stuff we do is based on volumes coming out of the built environment, whether it be offices or big box solutions or government buildings and, and quite a lot, even with government buildings still operating, revenues reduced the same as they did for everybody. Yeah. So we had to engage in furlough, um, you know, quite a lot of the senior staff had to take, um, voluntarily took a pay cut to ensure we protected the company and our our plan. Um, but in truth, uh, while we, we didn't really miss a step in, in what we were gonna do as a plan, some of the timelines were stretched out, but as we hit towards the back end of the year, actually it just allowed us to prep to accelerate some of the plans that we were gonna do in 21 and 22. Mm. So one of them was kind of the on-demand offering was gonna have a longer lead time and we we're gonna approach market and do it in phases. Um, because the market's opened up where everybody's kind of got quite a, um, a harsh, uh, you know, monetary position now, because when you look at the liquidity of most companies, it, it's been threatened. Their revenues have slowed down. Mm. Um, they've continued having to pay a certain amount of bills plus their people. So cash is king and they're really, really cash sensitive. So something like an on-demand product where you go, no contract, no excess commitment, you order what you want. Yes, our terms conditions change in the way we respond because it's much more like Uber, um, but bringing those products forward became um, absolute paramount. So we were able to accelerate some of our plans by taking two years out of what we're going to do. And, and as we start to see some buildings open up again, although we've gone back to lockdown, um, it's made great traction. Mm -hmm. So I think overall, if you look at the end-to-end -end position, um, it's shortened. The stuff in the middle, we just rejigged. Yeah. Um, but quite a lot of people found being able to deliver that initially a bit disorientating because we were like this, you know, mm -hmm. miles apart, stuck on yeah, screens. Yeah. But I got to say, um, you know, human beings are pretty adaptable, and pretty much all our workforce, like our, our you know, our clients and customers, were really lucky to have. Everybody adjusted pretty quickly, and I think because we do FaceTime with family and. We're all quite tech savvy, tech savvy actually in the UK, um, definitely for kind of UK and EMEA. Um, yeah, we, we found a new way of working um, pretty pretty quickly um, mm. and adjusted. I think our hours are stretched. As I say, it just feel like you're living yeah. at work a lot of the time, but because you can't go out and you can't do other things, yeah. in some cases you go, well, let's carry on with some of our more interesting projects. So yeah. it's, I think it's been quite successful in terms of progress. Mm -hmm. um, and we've obviously had to navigate rough waters the same as pretty much every other company on the planet, mm -hmm. which we've navigated pretty well. We've had a bit of a dent, you know, we hit one or two big waves as it were, but um, yeah, we've come out of 20 in not bad shape. Mm -hmm. We're prepped really, really well for 21. I think in truth, you'll see the fruits of all the labors for the companies that have repositioned, you know, done digital advancements in 2022. And that's kind of what we're, and that's what we're expecting as well. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, yeah, I think it was, um, it was interesting how you mentioned that we, we, we quickly adapted. I guess we had to, but I think it was also quite, there was an, an element of 
I, I, can't, I can't help but think it was a bit exciting at the very beginning because we, I feel like we all thought three to six months working from home, the sun was shining, you know, this, this could be all right. You know, I was kind of getting my work done by sort of, you know, half three, four o'clock, beer in the garden. It was great. But then after six months, seven months, and it was like, this is going to go on for quite a while. And it's like, oh, no. But yeah, I think we adapted quite quickly. But uh, yeah, I think we've all had enough now. So hopefully the vaccine will, will start to uh, kick in. But they seem to be getting through it quite quickly anyway, which is quite good. Cool, cool. No, I think you're right. I think you're right on that observation that mm. um, th there's a novelty at first, wasn't there? For those oh, yeah. that don't do a portion of working from home, there's a little bit of fad factor and people adjusted. So, you know, you see loads of scenes on social media with people baking with the kids and getting up early in the morning and doing yeah, that exercise. Yeah. And then after six or seven months, the discipline to stick with effectively an enforced new way of living. And in truth, I, I said this as a bit of a gag to someone the other day. We're very lucky anyway in the UK, probably some more than others. And we've got lots of style out in the sticks. So we've got kind of lots of space around us. In a way, we're living in a very pleasant open prison because mm. we've had our liberty restricted new rules. And I think that is becoming tiresome for people now because of yeah. the restriction on liberty, not so much working from home. But, you know, it's as we come out of it, it will feel like an elastic band snapping. Mm. You know, we heard like Jess Staley from Barclay said, it, you know, he posed, this is the death of the office. Mm. No, it's no. the start of using office space in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's advancing the way that we can be more flexible in our working patterns. But the majority of our, uh, those that were both tenants and some of our owner occupiers, they've largely renewed in a similar way. So they're not mm. giving up their space. What we expect them to do is reuse their space now in a different fashion and the way they operate will change so it'll be really that's why it makes it quite interesting in this next phase of mm. vaccines working and lockdowns being eased how we do find ourselves back into a kind of a more conventional working routine yeah. you know the commute commutes will be slightly different but lots of people will still commute because they will want to go to work yeah yeah and, and there is that routine we had of doing whatever our commute was grabbing a coffee at the station reading the paper or doing a bit on the laptop mm -hmm. some people would miss that because at the moment we roll out of bed and you're at work and you're like, yeah exactly and if you don't go for a walk in the morning then that's it you're just in in the office yeah, space absolutely. or not i mean i was sp speaking to a uh a client the other day and um, he was saying that uh, within their business they've got a lot of call centers and he said it's a nightmare so it says a lot of our a lot of our people who take the calls who are normally in a call center they might be in their kind of in their twenties, thirties. They're in a shared house. They're in the bedroom taking these calls on the bed. And he said it's like it's you know the well-being for some people. It's all nice for some people who've got the space, have got the house, have got the garden. But he said for a lot of people, he said a lot of our people who work in the call centres, they're in they're locked in their bedroom on the phone, like waiting for these calls to come through. And it's like something that you don't really think of. That God, yeah, that's that's got to be. I mean, that's got to be a nightmare. There she is. Well, this is classic anyway, isn't it? Because this is part of modern work now that at some point homeschooling will yeah. find its way into the office. <laughs> Where are we going in half ten? Our gate. Our gate? Yes. No, we're not. We are. <laughs> it's, it's at the bottom of our garden. I've just been asked where we're going at half ten. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're going no more than about five miles away from the house. No, where did you just tell me? We don't know. There you go. There's and there's one of those restrictions we were talking about because for kids, I've, I've we've got three, we've got three kids, but varied age. They've been homeschooling, um, yeah. Which has been one of the other challenges: the real importance of school and getting back to that normality. And um, yeah, in some cases, I don't think it's really settled. Hence, that question was where we're we going on holiday after. Mm. We're not going anywhere. No, <laughs> as, nowhere. As nowhere. nobody is, and we are lucky that we've got 
we've got no biggest garden and we're out in the um yeah yeah out in the countryside but then you think about people central london where yeah. i said it's kind of like being in a pleasant open prison yeah but those people are stuck in a flat where there's stiffer oh. restrictions um <laughs> then actually everyone's joining in aren't they yeah, um, yeah. then actually for them that will just feel like prison because oh, yeah no, absolutely i mean if you're in a shared house and like i was quite a few years back it's uh, it's got to be a nightmare anyway listen let's let's get so that's your your current position thank you for that and uh, so let's go let's go back to the beginning so if you can tell us how did you get into the industry did you choose to be in the industry did you fall into into the industry like many do what's your background how did you get in it's an interesting question so like many do how many people choose to find their way into this industry you know more than those because you get to recruit them so. yeah 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 not not many really not many not many no. and i am one of those that this was not part of um career or occupational plan so um i was in the military i spent 25 years in the royal navy and hugely enjoyable and i guess by what you're wearing shoulders fairly successful career yeah um and in a way even though some of my skill sets mapped across, it was less conventional for what people in my trade did. So I was a weapons engineer. Um, so I'm probably one of the few rocket scientists that found themselves in the built environment. Yeah. And um, I worked on various ships, um, did all of the sort of combat type roles where I was in first and second Gulf War. Yeah. It was in Bosnia, Sierra Leone, um, got to have a more senior role for something like Libya. So I was deeply involved in the command of, of what we did in Libya. Um, and, made my way up to um, a certain rank and was also head of a part of the complex weapons program so missiles right so um, some of the missile systems you now see on the slung on a plane stuck on the back of a truck or on um, some of our warships uh, i was in charge of that part of the program for a while and in, then terms, did, in terms of what actually building them making them or kind of uh, some somewhere you own the design phase they're all built by our defense industry anyway so right. you'll sit in as system engineer or a program director, so they're the program director's role there. And for the close-in weapon systems and short-range missile systems, um, I worked for a group called Shorad, Short Range Air Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something called Seawolf Missile, which people re- may remember way back when from the Falklands. It went through a number of updates, and then it was a really modern version we did with, that was probably the most high-tech thing I got to work with, actually. Uh, that was then superseded by something called C-Sector, which, yeah. again, um, that was a fast bit of kit. That was, that was a real smart bit of kit. Sea Viper, which is on the bigger ships, and then I worked with the Type 45 destroyers, so I ended up being sort of head of platform for a while with those. Yeah. Uh, and that's the ones with the big golf ball radar on top. Um, and one of those missile sets um, for Sea Sector becomes Land Sector, and is also going to be the replacement that goes underslung on the RAF planes. Um, so we kind of owned it with huge teams underneath us, so huge budgets, and our budget was like 1.1 billion pounds mm. um, for part of the programme. Um, Really, really interesting job. You get to work with some really great people who are incredibly dedicated, whether in uniform or out of uniform. Mm. Um, but quite a lot of what we did, um, because for the for a missile system to work, it's attached to a whole system with inside a ship. And yeah. a ship is very similar to core buildings. It's got air conditioning, has power yeah. generation, HV and LV. Um, plus then it's got its own data center built within the ship. It has an airport at the back end. Uh, it's got a seaport left and right because you load boats off it. Mm. Plus at all times, it's a specialist storage vessel because it's got highly dangerous cargo. So all the qualifications and experience you have to a point it's a little bit easier in the built environment because the buildings don't shift around at 30 miles an hour for 24 hours a day in all weathers. They yeah, largely yeah. stand still. Yeah. Um, but I, um, one of my latter jobs I did, I worked at a group called Permanent Joint Headquarters. So 
that's where they kind of run all the plans for all of the operations around the world 24 7 and most people won't know but we hold five permanent operating bases around the world where we effectively own the land um, and they're fairly large scales so we have cyprus where we still own two bits of cyprus called sovereign base areas gibraltar falcon islands and ascension and then this enormous swathe of the Indian Ocean called the British Indian Ocean Territories. Um, so I, I, I sat within the structure that looked after those. You had direct desk command of, I think the work in London, yeah, you commanded them all around the world. Um, and with that came all of the infrastructure. So airports, all the buildings, including the contracts, which were kind of inter-served, Serco. Mm -hmm. So we held the contracts for those companies and a company called DG21, which was run from America for some of it. So that was kind of my first taster and it was um, for working within the built environment and managing yeah. it. Again, big budgets. And part of it was bringing the cost down. The cost of ownership of infrastructure and buildings is huge, absolutely huge and complicated. Um, so it, was, it wasn't kind of my core trade. It was, I don't know, a higher command uh, job, but it was, it was incredibly interesting. And what yeah. I found really interesting was how antiquated both the processes and the way we approach buildings, you know, whether it be looking after airports or ports or quite big box solutions because we have logistics sheds um, and coming from quite high tech that really was cutting edge and looking at how we operated the built environment. I thought, wow, outside, you must be able to make a killing making this more efficient because it just wasn't efficient the way we contracted, mm. the way we measured, the way we didn't use technology. Mm. So I kind of had some interest. Um, I got to a point with our third child hit my next pension point my wife said um, enough can you get a proper job now so i um, <laughs> yeah, it was actually um because i was i i put my notice in and i negotiated a position with the european space agency so i was going back into that kind of spacey rockety area um and they were opening a kind of a new center in harwell in oxfordshire which isn't far from where i live um, so I went through the process, right? I kind of secured a role and then there was an incident in the Gulf and I'd only been out of the Navy at that point for three weeks. Um, and it was the day after my third was born, the little one that just came in before. Yeah. And the elastic band was snapped and I got a call from uh, Commander-in-Chief Fleet's office to say, we've had a fairly serious injury with one of the commanders out in the Gulf. Um, ultimately, because the ship I'd been on was the prep to go out next, they said, we haven't got him on rotation. We... We're going to, when they have an allowance to do it, and we're going to have to pull you back in for a few weeks. Um, so I was asked if wow. I could fly out from Bryce Norton the next day, which I went, that's a, that's a bit racy, can I go in a few days? <laughs> so I, I um, yeah, I had to get myself battle prepped again and ended up out in the Gulf. And it was during more heightened tension um, yeah, yeah. around things going on in Syria. So I went out for three weeks. Four months later, I was still there, um, stuck <laughs> out um, between Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. So the role I was going to go to was lost. Um, I've got to say those still, it was a glorious last four months in the Royal Navy. Um, so yeah. we achieved the thing we needed to achieve. And I had the best exit from the Navy. So um, I was I was on HMS Kent, was the last ship served in. Um, mm. And the ship's helicopters, something called a Merlin, huge thing. And they needed to get me off um, while we're still at sea. So the middle Indian Ocean, they a puddle jumped me to HMAS Newcastle, an Australian ship. Um, and I was met on the flight deck from one of my old buddies from university who'd been in the Royal Navy and then yeah. he'd emigrated and swapped over to the Aussie Navy. So we met me on the flight deck. We watched the British Lions beat Australia <laughs> in the captain's cabin on there with him. Nice. I was then picked up the next day, dunked in the sea by their pilot because he was an Aussie and transferred to a French ship 
and the French ship steamed me towards Djibouti and then the French Foreign Legion came out and picked me up the dead of night um, in a super puma and skimmed me into Djibouti under the cover of darkness about 50 feet off the sea. It was it was absolutely brilliant. Amazing, I was, amazing. I was, then, I was then met by um, a security escort for the royal family of Saudi Arabia. I was put on a private jet, took to Riyadh and then first class on Air France back to Heathrow. Thank so, you. That is a journey back, isn't it? Eh? Sink fleet took me to my in-laws' house and they quite a big pad where my family were waiting with us with the TV out on the lawn to watch Andy Murray win Wimbledon. So <laughs> if you're ever going to leave a job on a moment of glory, it was absolutely, because prior to that, I had been on HMS Westminster. I'd left on a wet Wednesday in Plymouth and handed the keys over and just got in my car and drove home, which after yeah. 25 glorious years was a bit of a damp squib. So it's a good way to leave. So anyway, I... Um, I feel like you just described a scene from James Bond or something. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I, I got some great to, photos to, from to it. To top it, was... it off, you walk in, Andy Murray's just won Wimbledon and everyone's having that was it. strawberries and cream and champagne on the lawn. It's, it was fantastic. And it, yeah, it was beautiful sunshine because they were sat, they were sat out yeah. in the garden watching it. Um, so I was then without a role to go to. Um, and uh, on LinkedIn, um, I somebody messaged me on LinkedIn about because mm. um, they knew about armed forces people transferring into the built environment. Yeah. Um, and I think you know him, Sean Sexton. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Sean um, gave me a call, said it was a role that, you know, could have a chat about it. In the end, it looks at role and actually might be a bit too senior for it. Um, so then um, Candice had a chat with me at the same company because she was working at the same company at the yeah, time. I, I know her. And, and, and a role she'd been approached about, which was around government estate, has some sensitivity around it. Um, and his fixed term contract said actually maybe of interest um, the guy running it that was with Buig yeah. wanted a chat mainly because of military background and uh, you know it may just be a bit of a taster about what we could do so I had a chat with the company uh, they were really really keen and um, because I was available for the mm -hmm. first three months anyway the, the Navy said actually you can kind of go for free so um, I stepped into Buig found it really interesting and um, we got to the end of the fixed term contract period and I'd met um, the team at NG Bailey and they had a particular problem and they do like problems. If it's already running on rails, it's not normally for me. Um, so Stuart approached me and said, you know, come in for a chat about numbers. And in the end, they made a bigger number than and it was, was about pay really. So I stepped into NG Bailey, did a, really, a few really good years with them, did yeah. some digital stuff with them. Um, then kind of had an opportunity at GSH and I was only at GSH just under a year and then opportunities came up at JLL mm -hmm. which was going to be much more transformational so the things that we'd learned JLL were very serious about this is what we want to do we want to switch an on-demand service on we want to instrument the space more um, to change the journey in this case it was mainly about engineering to start with but the same for those that provide janitorial services so I've ended up kind of finding my way through a number of companies with this growing desire to the companies wanting to change the way we offer service mm. um, and you really need to be the size of a JLL, a CBRE, um, a kind of ISS to be able to invest in driving the change from the service yeah. end but also have the range of clients that give you the capability to do it. Mm -hmm. Excellent, great career, great career and uh, I see you kind of Went from the, I guess, the smaller service providers like Buig, NG Bailey, up to um, to, to where you are now. I mean, how does it differ working for kind of like you know one of the uh, the, the smaller providers to one of the uh, the larger ones like where you are now? Because obviously JLL are, are, are well, they're massive. They are. In some cases, it's the range of um, mm. different services you interact with. So service lines, been, we productize them in JLL. But if you were at Buig's, we may do I don't know ten or eleven things, and you do it really, really well. 
but Bweeks was kind of a more of a specialist attached to PFIs and Triple P, which had done really well around the world between here, Canada and Kuwait, and you sat within that group. And actually Bweek, which some people don't really know them that well, but they're a giant company because they do really, really complex engineering. So like the nuclear shelter out in Chernobyl, that was, they were the core company that designed and built. They were one of the three companies that built Channel Tunnel, and yet we've never heard of them. Yeah, and at yeah. the time, part of the contract was looking after the cabinet office in number 10. So people wouldn't have known there was you know, it's a French-owned company. Yeah. A French company was doing the cabinet office. Um, and the beauty, because the business unit itself was fairly small and a bit specialised, so they were pretty quick at getting things done. So decisions mm. were fairly quick. Um, but also their risk appetite was probably a bit more reserved. Um, at Bailey's, they were a different different focus on engineering, but they were they were genuinely engineer excellence from, if you like, the uh, the heavy electrical world, which is largely where they've come from um, when they'd started you know, years back in Yorkshire. Mm. Um, so everything there was about linking, which again was really interesting, was linking the cross cell and could we connect what heavy engineering was doing to kind of projects. And we, I was part of the team, helped form a direct projects team and then linking it to the IT division about could we introduce IT. So there was kind of a different matrix on the way that we would always look for cross-sell to try and bring the components of the company together to ensure um, all of those services were being layered on as a, an offering to the client. Mm -hmm. um, and then you went to GSH, which GSH had a really interesting history. You know, it'd been a wholly owned company, gone public, yeah. come back to a wholly owned company. And then it sold its UK arm and centered its HQ in the States with um, Mark as the CEO. And they had a huge um, APAC division. And they were really interesting where they had looked at um, all the impacts of cost to serve where it wasn't really value add. And they, you know, they're, they're kind of badged the way they use it, especially in the States, is they're the outsourcer that outsources. So things like they've got, um, they kind of came up with a better setup for Maximo, worked really closely with IBM, and then used the kind of outsource function to run their CAFM. So they didn't carry a big heavy CAFM team, they got somebody to do it. They, um, with Claire Perry, she'd set up the way we do supply chain management, which was, um, it was really dynamic the way we work with the supply chain and the way we had them on our systems, which worked really well for the supply chain and really well for GSH. Mm. And then they concentrated on their own teams delivering the engineering, even HR to a point was outsourced. So where they'd gone to that platform approach, it was incredibly efficient. So getting stuff done was really quick. Yeah. Um, really, really quick. It's probably the quickest for any companies I work with. And then when you come to JLL, JLL is a Leviathan. You know, it's, it's circa 100,000 employees around the world mm. because it does work in, um, you know, full three regions. We've got APAC division, um, the Americas division and EMEA. And they've got these divisions within divisions of what the business is offering in terms of the investment capability, the valuation advisory, that kind of real estate function and corporate solutions. And now we've grown a technology tower as a fourth component of the business. So their focus was very much on how do we leverage, how do we become the technologists that drive the change in the business? But to a point, don't, don't be overly technology-led because it's about people, mm. the technology is the enablement. Um, and because they're going through this big transformation at the moment as a you know, team, which we're part of, um, it's working how, how you don't over-centralise at the moment because at the moment, when if you want a decision, we have to be really careful about who's making the decision across budgets. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a bit of a journey about how can we get that agility while still fitting in um, because JLL is able to offer so much and works on such a big scale. Mm. Um, that's probably the difference. It can offer so much and offers really good value, 
but the decision making is then slower and it would be you know you're trying to get to that point where you've got sufficient agility where you can deliver really quality service but you're empowering within you know as close to the cold face as possible yeah. the decision making um, which we haven't nailed that yet that's what we're moving towards and 2021 is going to afford us that i think mm -hmm. excellent and having worked for for different service providers over the years how would you say that the the service provider the service industry has changed within the fm sector do you think I think um, the the move towards using digital techniques and tools. Yeah. Um, so it has been changing, and, and there's no you know no mistake in that. Everyone now does use some kind of CAFM. We're seeing much more go out to handsets where people are using an app. Where originally started, that was kind of a little bit unique. And and so like Buig, they already used Maximo and they used it really really well. Mm. But that kind of is the Rolls Royce of those CAFM enterprise asset management yeah. systems. What's changed is there's um, as you get. You know, you can get platforms now to sit in the cloud as cloud computing as game traction. It's easy just to get software as a service where you can compete rather than having to deal, delve into millions for a big CAFM. So because of that, everyone has started to normalize the business working much more digitally. And that's probably been the biggest change. Mm -hmm. And with it, starts to offer you the ability to be more efficient, but also be much more transparent with the client. Cool. Um, so I was going to ask you, there's, um, I mean, you're probably aware that there's a there's always been or there has been for a while a a skills shortage that gets talked about in the industry and you know, lack of engineers and stuff. Um, so, what do you think can be done? I mean, obviously this week's like you know National Apprenticeship Week. I'm not sure if you're aware. I saw that kind of crop there up. We are, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what do you what do you think the industry can do more uh, in order to kind of close that skills shortage gap? Do you reckon? And do you reckon? Do you think the gap can be? got rid of ever or is it always going to be there so i think yeah it's a it's a, it's a it's a really good question and it comes with a couple of challenges yeah do we gen do we genuinely have a skills gap and we think we do because when we contract i'm going to going to say sfg20 so let's use yeah. an engineering because it's not just engineering but the engineering example is a really good one we um we contract against a calendar-based set of events on assets that are declared whether they're needed or not so as a result, you end up with a capacity demand. So he mm -hmm. says, I will need an electrician to do this many hours, whether or not it's value added work. Mm -hmm. And I will need to employ an electrician for 12 months a year to go to, I don't know, 400 buildings, um, look at something, tick a sheet or press a button on an electronic form. And in terms of the actual engineering or, or the, the technical interaction somebody does, I would love for somebody to give me some accurate figures on it. Because I guarantee you, the figures don't equate to the capacity we force onto the workforce. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you, 100%. Um, so I think the first step is change our employment model. Right. So a really good one to look at. It's slightly different because it's different skills. But where you genuinely do have globally some skill access challenge for things like you no know, higher tech projects. So um, full stack coders or front end coders or a JavaScript coder. In truth, you're not always going to want somebody with that skill set sat within a team 12 months a year where you give them full-term contract. What you want to be able to do is access them. The rate per day will be higher, but they can have flexible work and you need some way to um, access them. So there's a really good one that um, Harvard Business Review just looked at, which is called uh, Top Talent, Top Talent, it's supposed to be for. So it's a website where people make themselves available and you connect through the website. Mm -hmm. so, so what I've posed, because I've looked at this, is our current employment model as we start to look at on demand is 
I will want access to 130% of my work capability every day, mm -hmm. which is a magic figure. I know this because when we remanned warships, we needed a way to access 130% of our capability without it all being manned on a ship. So when we sent a ship off to the Gulf, in most cases, you will need a set of engineers for the first four or five days because you tune, you set fuel economy, you do some tuning in uh, of the radar. But then for quite a lot of the time, those guys then clean or they take ancillary duties until something breaks or until they get to a heavy maintenance period. So when we looked at that as a problem, we said, well, why don't we take them off in Gibraltar and then they can do the next ship coming behind them? Because we don't need them on that ship all the time. Mm -hmm. Why don't we forward base a set yeah. of engineers out in the Gulf and run a base there? And then in terms of the actual capacity of what they need to do, we could generate 130% of the capacity need, but we actually generated a 35% reduction in the headcount need. Mm. So it was matching your capacity task to where your headcount was. So the rest of the headcount we took on, while they did on silly duties, they could train, they could take leave, they could do other things. Um, now, not perfect, but it mm. did alleviate this issue. Mm. So in our workplace, the, there is one company that looked at it around taxis. Right, okay. And said... Uber, that's how Uber operated. It says, yeah, yeah. at any one time, Saturday night in London, I probably need access to 5,000 taxis every hour. Yeah. But as a company, I'm not going to employ 5,000 taxi drivers just because I need it on Saturday. Mm. So they broke the problem down in a different way. And so why don't we let people who have the ability to provide transport at the right times, the right skill set in a way, to use a platform to make themselves available, fulfill that service against the mm. same rules. And then when we've got a client set that have a certain need and the capacity changes, it goes up and down and we connect them through a platform. Yeah. So I see it as having the platform connection. You will still need business interaction where you give people a different employment option mm. and actually working with recruiters who don't recruit the same way anymore. It's more about holding clubs of people in the right area with the right yeah, skill set, yeah. keeping them current. And it means they can make themselves available. And as it is, we have a product that operates that way, which we will be introducing. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a little bit like um, the Pimlico Plumbers model. Yeah. Charlie Mullins yeah. cracked it years ago, just didn't do it. Oh, he did. He did it. Yeah. He, he did it in a very focused way. And, you know, Pimlico Plumbers is a bit expensive, but they do first time fix. And when they deliver, they deliver. They're absolutely top quality. And there's no knocking them. Mm. So we want to try and reform throughout 2021 that, that can we look at the employment model? So if I'm an electrician, I make myself available on a platform, but I won't necessarily always be serving a JLL. I may be serving Mighty mm -hmm. or I may be serving ISS. But to be on the platform, I have to be 18th edition. Yeah. I have to have done a job um, within the last 10 days. I must do so many jobs every 30 days to ensure that I'm current and I must score four stars throughout a 30-day period to stay on the platform. Right, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I see. Very I different. See. And, and when you look at that at capacity, it means we do still have a, sh a skill shortage. Yeah. But all of a sudden, it's not so scary. It becomes manageable. And then you can do things like the apprenticeship scheme isn't used well enough, mainly because in some cases it's forced, forced because there's a policy to try and get us to use it. And in some cases, some of the apprenticeships need encouragement with focused delivery to a certain sector. So a great one's Hallam University, the way that's looked at FM. So that's a really good one, delivering FM. Yeah. Um, likewise, you look at the functions in real estate. You know, if you go meet a chartered surveyor that's working for CBRE or JLL, normally they've been to Reading University and done the course at Reading University. Mm -hmm. So with those, there's this, there's this genius that works within networking and um, innovation called Ian Tracy. Um, so if people are looking up and connect with him. He runs this group now called ACOM. And they're looking at how you can bring companies that have fintech, prop tech, whatever it is you want. They're looking a little bit of technology. And you can go to university and say, 
I've got a need or a college, I've got a need that I will be taking on 50 people a year that need skill sets that drive towards the service delivery or what this future problem is. They then can get the necessary funding. They can form a course that feeds your company's needs. Mm. So, so with that, and it comes down to the magic C word, collaboration, and the, the pandemic should have taught us, yes, there's always a bit of competition within the space, but it's, it's kind of synergistic in a way that you all have to scratch each other's back as well. Because inevitably, mm-hmm. you know, we'll go against the bid, the same integrals going on a bid, they might have fails on a bid against ISS. Yeah. One, of our, one of our biggest contracts, ISS, have a huge chunk of it because they do the cleaning for us. Yeah. So, and with that, it means you've got to be growing up in your collaboration. So within accessing the skill set and the right pool, the only way it will work is collaboration. It's just who gets to put those platforms forward first, mm-hmm. put the rules yeah. in yeah. and make it work. For the client, it's single pane of glass interaction that gives them assured delivery. So by dropping an app, so you could go on and drop our facilities on demand app, there's some technology behind it and we've got a load of management behind it, but to a point, you're not committing to a contract, you're putting your need forward, it will be serviced, to it's guaranteed, it's still guaranteed as if you had a contract. Mm. And it's driven by reputation, it's driven by collaboration. For, you know, she's the engineer again, if you're the engineer, you are rewarded in a different way that's much more, much more interactive because mm-hmm. um, we're looking at how we can gamify the experience so that you're not just rewarded with your salary, but there's ways for you to drive greater value, kind of hit bonus in a day. Charlie mm-hmm. Mullins does it. You know, if you hit five jobs on gas, you go into a next level um, pay band and you kind of bonus up. So that's what we're going to be able to do for our people, whether it's somebody doing four mobile cleans and they mm-hmm. will score four or five stars. Well, you want to be able to reward on that because that is encouraging really high levels of service, but it's, it's encouraging as well greater levels of productivity. And there's a, you know, there's a huge productivity challenge within the UK. And it's because we've just not been dynamic enough to change how we we interact with each other. Yeah. And we look at delivering, especially around service, service and products a different way. And I think, you know, we've got grand plans about trying to deliver some of this. Um, but I think it's just a much more exciting way for people to work together. Yeah, no, definitely. I think uh, it's going to be, the next few years are going to be exciting, I think, in terms of the, the technology that's out there. And I think that, people within the FM industry or the industry is starting to realize that actually we're a bit behind other industries with technology. Um, I'm starting to see new companies crop up that are kind of more prop tech companies. And like you mentioned earlier on, the Uberization of, um, of, uh, of service streams or facilities management, you know, and, and kind of, you know, having those platforms where it's just gonna be essentially just, just all, all on your phone, the client's just gonna go, right, Need a sparky, need this, where do bang, 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 push, push, push. And well, then. So you're it's right. quite, quite exciting times, really. And I think, you know, if you're going to find an industry and perhaps it's an industry that wasn't fully understood before, you know, we spend 87% of our time in some kind of work or transport or building. Yeah. That's where our time is spent. Um, it is an industry that's kind of, it hasn't been at the forefront, mainly because it's high volume, low margin. It's quite expensive to invest in buildings. Um, pandemics lifted the lid on it, but if you want what's now going to be the fast-paced, quite exciting industry. And I think it will be quite breathless with quite a few, especially when they've been used to operate in a certain way. It's this industry. Mm. There will be a demand not just by going to an app to say, I want these services, just as interesting as I want this space. So we yeah. look at, you know, you look at retail on the high street, people said it's dead. It's not dead. It's just going through a painful transformation. Because yeah. we've been holding on to the idea it's just, you know, that we want shops. Our shopping behaviours would have changed massively now anyway. You know, after 80 days, it sets completely for everyone mm. new norms. 
well, that space just becomes reusable. So again, we've looked at, you kind of got hub, club, Rome and home in the way you will work. So your hub will be your main offices. So that space will still be used, perhaps not in the same volume, but it will become different orientation, not just rows of desks where people can tap a key. But likewise, you may want some club space. So, you know, where I live, I said the village I live, I think there's 10 main players in the real estate industry from a company called Montague Evans, BMP Paribas, a couple of guys run their own company. Um, Tim lives across another village who's our kind of head of London markets. Now, if we were going to have a meeting collectively, normally we would all be in London and we would probably use one of the meeting rooms in London at yeah. Work Street or perhaps over at Montague Evans or in one of our buildings. But we may all leave Oxfordshire, go on a train, travel all the way in. And in that, you look at our carbon footprint that day. We've all got quite <laughs> yeah, biggest yeah. cars. We all sit on the train. We travel across London to go and use an office probably for two hours. Or where we've got a redefined high street, you could go onto an app, find a club spot where there's an office you, yeah, we could rent yeah. with a meeting room. We'll probably get catering. And yeah. we could take that for two hours and someone would make money about it. But we're connected as a company. Mm-hmm. Now, I think literally millions of people will want that service. The yeah. other part then is just as quickly, as long as my system works, I want it to be able to work in a pub. So I book a table at a pub mm. and perhaps we do it at a pub. And I still want my service as this is at home. So the digital services connecting to the real estate services, connected to the people services, that's what I think 2021 is going to focus on generating, 2022 will deliver. Yeah, no, it's exciting times. It really is. It really is. I like the idea of uh, doing meetings in pubs again as well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been, it's been, or doing it's been, anything in a pub. <laughs> I know. It's been so long. Like we're, I mean, we're in the, we're in the office we are, and uh, going home and just seeing all the, you know, we'll pop out for lunch. It's basically Pret, Pret or Pret at the moment in central London. That's the only thing that's open. And uh, yeah, just walking past all these pubs that are closed down, it's just oh, it's a shame. It's just a crying shame. It really is. Desperate for a pint. Um, I think there's a message in the sense about 150 billion that will hit that retail again, that sort of restaurant, pub, leisure. Yeah. We, I think we should commit, commit to get back into pubs as soon as humanly possible um, and do a lot more business in there to ensure we help them recover. I think it'll definitely happen. It's going to, that's going to be, yeah. It's probably going to be the last thing to open though, isn't it, the pubs? Pubs and restaurants, I imagine, because it's the way we're all, where we're all mixing, was. breathing on each other or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of... Uh, yeah, and I think the government look, how uh, they did look and go, it kind of was the thing that um, revamped it last time because even with the rules, people relax, you touch in, it's close proximity. It's, we kind of need the vaccine programme to be nice and stable and then yeah. pubs open as quickly as humanly possible. Massively. So, Mickey, it's been a pleasure. Just one final question before we before we end. Um, what would your advice be to anybody? I, I ask everybody this. What would your advice be to anybody who's just started out in their career in the FM sector? What advice would you give them? Um, probably, you know... <laughs> There's a quote I heard from my kids' school the other day. They had someone walking across the um, the Antarctic, and he resonated with something that someone had said that um, set a plan, but within your plan, hope is not a strategy, luck is not a factor, but fear shouldn't be, um, you know, the reason you don't do it. Yeah. So plan out, you know, where do you want to be and why, and against that, what do you need to do in terms of lifelong learning. Because if you're hitting the sector now, the rate of change is going to be like nothing the sector's ever had. And it's starting to happen. Mm. And you need to ensure you're a comfortable digital native. You need some good numbers skills. If you weren't so cool on numbers, get better at numbers. Mm. Um, And the bit that's really well worth working on is the networking. 
Yeah. Um, FM for all of its digitization and um, you know all of the process and using systems it's still a trust game and for part of the trust you need a network but you need to ensure that um, you know for all your capabilities trust will sell more that you are true to your commitment yeah um, and if you can build a network and you're trusted you absolutely fly within this sector because people will come to you, you become a natural problem solver mm -hmm. um, you become an honest broker and the more people can see that the more you become wanted not just as employee but people want to bring work to you as well uh, and that's probably one that i found is is that network and being open and honest um sometimes being bold means that um yeah you want your networks you know what's going on all the time which obviously offers business growth opportunities and, yeah and you can see we need to change um but it also means there's always support there because you're, you're not one person ever going to solve all the problems it means you can know who you go to and if you're trusted someone will work with you so yeah yeah, yeah that's probably it no i massively agree and i think with platforms like linkedin and the rest of it it's um yeah, it just, just helps. And I think that this pandemic has just kind of accelerated the industry into using LinkedIn more and being on there more and, and kind of and having that network uh, while we're all sat at home and stuff. So cool, yeah. cool. Mickey, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. And uh, listen, hopefully we'll catch up soon in a, in a pub this year. In a pub, absolutely. Yeah. Drinks are on me. <laughs> nice one. Take care. All the best. Catch you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.